Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our podcast. There has been a lot of interest around developer-first banking APIs recently. So in this episode, we go over a recent tech IPO, Silvergate Capital, ticker SI, which is a digital currency-focused bank and settlement network. We discuss their business, particularly around their digital currency initiatives and their Silvergate Exchange Network, or SEN. We get into the weeds of what it means to be an API-first financial services company. Before we get into the episode, a word from our sponsor, us. Quantlayer is a software consultancy. We build software applications for our clients, help teams with new product development, and work with them on tech strategy. We love working on all industry verticals while specializing in helping teams with complex problems and bringing their solutions to life. So real-time features, complex and interactive UIs, parallelism, think data aggregation and pipelining, search and indexing and alerts. If any of these more ambitious features sound interesting to you, we would love to chat with you. Please drop me a line at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Mary, at quantlayer.com. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. You got Quantlayer here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Uh, not much. So uh, first off, I want to thank all our listeners. So we've been getting a ton of great podcast topic ideas from you guys. One thing that we've been trying to do more of, and it sounds like a lot of you like hearing these kind of episodes, are these uh, public market analyses of kind of tech-heavy companies. So we've covered, I think a big one that has been our most popular episode so far was the Elasticsearch episode where we go over you know, their business model, how they use open source to drive revenue and so on. And then we looked at Cloudflare, we've looked at CrowdStrike we looked at a, a Bitcoin mining company going public in the context of the broader like chip space. So we've gotten some awesome ideas from you guys. So thank you and please keep sending them on. So the next one we wanted to cover is Silvergate Capital. So this one's going to be a little bit different and different meaning it's not a, I think they like to think of themselves as a tech company. I don't want to start the podcast being all harsh about them, but I think they think of themselves as kind of like next gen digital bank that has like a Stripe level API. And so we wanted to talk about that because that's obviously that is tech. And we wanted to get into that and see what the company was about. And then as we've kind of gone through it, I would say like I at least have some issues with this kind of portrayal. It isn't to say it's a legitimate business. Um, It is a legitimate business and you can see from like the growth and profitability numbers. But to say that they're, you know, tech heavy, that their API is going to drive all their future growth and so on, there's potential for overstatement there. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So first off, let's uh, talk about what they do. So on their website, they say they enable entrepreneurs to build best-in-class financial infrastructure at scale. And in their prospectus, they, they have two kind of definitions. One is the banking platform for innovators. And then the second one is we believe we are the leading provider of innovative financial infrastructure solutions and services to participants in the nascent and expanding digital currency industry. All these kind of, the first, I guess the kind of like, 
entrepreneur innovator angle, that's one thing. And then the kind of digital currency angle might be another thing. But what do you think about these, uh, these kind of like mission statements? So it's interesting because the mission statement is pretty broad. They're just saying, you know, we're helping you build financial infrastructure. Then the other one is more interesting because it's talking about providing infrastructure solutions and services to the digital currency industry, which is something that a lot of banks are not doing. You know, if you're in the digital currency space, it's hard to form relationships with banks uh, or payment providers. So if they are providing that, there's definitely something interesting there. Yep. The thing, this reading these kind of reminds me of that company, uh, Mint. Did you ever use them? Yeah. Okay, so... I haven't used them a long time. When I first signed up for them, they basically gave you like a breakdown of your expenses, like what you're spending money on, like your savings and all that stuff for each bank account or trading account that you hooked up with them. And I thought that was pretty cool. I stopped liking it after a while because I'm like, why am I giving these guys all my my information? So I ended up like canceling my account. Yeah, that's what happened with me. Once I became aware of just like data collection and how it's used, I just dis- I, I disconnected my mint from all my bank accounts. Yeah. But one thing that is lacking, at least I haven't seen it, is some kind of nice interface to just track that stuff, like kind of zero for yeah. your personal account. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and another personal frustration I have with like mint and PayPal and a lot of these is that like I have Canadian bank accounts and American bank accounts, and there's nothing that lets me just do like multi currency, multi country. Okay. So I have two separate PayPal accounts. I have two separate trackers for my bank accounts. I have two two of everything. I usually get one that did everything. And I think there's probably a lot of people in that same yeah. position. That is, anyway, that's a, a huge rant. pain. Um, no, but the rants related because the like, I think if you ask anyone, um, they have problems with their bank, like not just maintenance fees and all that stuff, but just like I, I just want to easily be able to log in. Like we have issues between us and our QL account. It's like who can log in when and all that stuff. We've gone in and tried to talk to them about having um be able to have like multiple accounts to log in. But there's every bank has some pain point around just letting their users just work with them easily. So I think all this stuff is like related yes. to this. So that's it's, it's all it's all good. All right. So back to Silvergate. They have, uh, okay, so they talk about a mission statement. Then they have this kind of like, they have this graph going from 21 customers to 756 customers over five years. And they list, okay, so they're custom, they go 21 customers, 756 customers. So the customers are digital currency exchanges, institutional investors, and other digital currency businesses. They actually, this is, it's like all really vague here. It's okay because they go into more detail later on. But here is, I think, so they list like the three co- key components of their business model. They say they're a technology-driven platform, leading compliance framework, and a visionary approach. And I think we'll get into that more. And then the services they offer are these, this thing they call the SEN, which is the Silvergate Exchange Network. And then they have kind of like normal banking solutions like cash management solutions and, and deposit account services and stuff like that. So to get into this SEN, the Silvergate Exchange Network. So... This network here, so they got another graph in the prospectus where they go from Q1 2018 to Q3 2019. And it's, it's pretty impressive. So they break down the number of transactions and the transaction value. So it's pretty impressive on both ends. So Q1 2018, they had 284 transactions. That's just 284 transactions and a transaction value of $837 million. Now, MM here means a million, right? Or a thousand? Yeah, million. So that's million. like $300,000 per transaction on yeah, average, that's give huge. or take. 
Yeah. Yeah. So these are big institutional shifts of money going on. Yep. And the latest is $31.4 billion of transaction value over 40,000 transactions. So the transaction volume has grown, but the transaction size has also grown. So that's almost a million dollars per transaction. Yep. Uh, so that's super interesting. So definitely we talked a little bit about our concerns of, you know, kind of them labeling themselves as a tech-driven platform or, you know, API-driven growth. But all that aside, it's this is a impressive amount of growth that we have seen in this, uh, in the business. So, so that's interesting. All right. So let's get into like, what they do exactly. So we know that we know very broadly what they do. We don't know much about their history just yet, but quick overview there. They kind of they have a historical bank. It's pretty old. They're kind of divesting a lot of assets of that bank and f- focusing just on the digital currency side. So I'll just read off from their overview. Silvergate Capital Corporation is a holding company for Silvergate Bank, which we believe is the leading provider of innovative financial infrastructure solutions and services to participants in this digital currency industry. Instrumental to their leadership is the SEN, or the Silvergate Exchange Network, their proprietary virtually instantaneous payment network for for participants in the digital currency industry. So what is your, like, based on the definition, like, how do you, what's another way you would kind of describe this thing? So this is the part of their business that seems to me to have the most value in uh, the digital currency space, but I also don't understand it. And what I mean by that is just off of what they have in their filings and on their website, it's not clear to me who is transacting on the SEN and why. So it's it's apparent, like, you know, it's these different participants that are obviously transferring money amongst each other and settling in US dollars, but I don't have a clear understanding of why. <laughs> who they are. <laughs> right. Okay, so the SEN has a powerful network effect that makes it more valuable as participants and utilization increase, leading to 374% growth in SEN transaction volumes in the first six months of 2019 compared to 2018. The SEN has enabled us to focus on significantly growing our non-interest bearing deposit product for digital currency industry participants, which has provided the majority of our funding over the last two years. So when I read this, I read this as, you know, this coupled with like exchanges and things like that. I read that as those guys being, you know, the major customers here. Yeah. So, okay. This unique source of funding is a distinct advantage over most traditional financial institutions and allow, allows us to generate revenue from a conservative portfolio of investments in cash, securities, loans, and all the other stuff banks do. In addition, use of the SCN has resulted in an increase in non-interest income that we believe will become a valuable source of additional future revenue as we develop and deploy fee-based solutions in connection with our digital currency initiative. And then finally, they finish up with, we are also evaluating additional products or product enhancements specifically targeted at providing further financial infrastructure solutions to our customers and strengthening these SEN network effects. So to understand this, essentially, because people want to use the SEN, they're depositing money with Silvergate. And then Silvergate is able to invest that money into cash, short-term securities and loans. And that's essentially where their profit's coming from. And they're also planning new products in the digital currency space. Is that, do I have that correct? I, I think so. 
But again, to your question around who is using this and why. Like, I don't understand the parties that need to be trans, you know, the 30 billion, $31 billion that flowed around uh, Q3 last year. Like, who are these people and why are they doing all this business in US dollars on the SEN? Right. Specifically. So on page six, they have this kind of like graph. It's a graph about their customers. So, oh, here we go. Digital currency customers starts on page five and goes to page six. So let's just go through this, I guess. We've developed a diverse set of 655 established and emerging digital currency industry customers as of June 2019. Our customer base has grown rapidly. Uh, We had 228 prospective digital currency customers in various stages of the onboarding process. So, you know, if they close all of them, they almost have 1,000, you know, 900 or so. Our customers include some of the largest U.S. exchanges and global investors in the digital currency industry. Ecosystem includes software developers, digital currency miners, custodians, and general industry participants that need our solutions and services. So uh, I'll ask you about this and let me know if you think I'm reading too much into this. I thought this was kind of interesting that they list software developers first, because I would think that some of the other participants would be much larger than... Like, I don't know if these are solo devs, but I'm not sure. Usually, like, when lawyers go through this, they like to put stuff in order of importance. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you think institutional investors and exchanges are the ones driving the volume. Yep. But maybe they put software developers there because they know that in this space, like, the legitimacy of the tech and, like, the API and the exchange is going to drive adoption right. as well. Like no one's going to use the exchange that like all of yep. the devs hate in this particular space. It's very technology driven. So these customers, like the group that we just talked about, comprise 27.2% of our digital currency customers. They want to keep growing their ecosystem, deepen their customer relationships, and so on. And then they have this little graph on page six about who their customers are and how much they played a role. So here we go. So there's digital currency exchanges institutional investors, and then this kind of like other customers. So digital currency exchanges, they list a few like Coinbase, Genesis, Bitstamp. I'm I'm surprised to see kind of Coinbase on there. I thought they worked with kind of like traditional banks, maybe, I don't know. And then under institutional investors, they used Block Tower, Polychain Capital, and under other customers, Figure and Kiva. Kiva, isn't that like a microloan thing? Uh, Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, like a microlending platform. Yeah, that's what I wonder what the, yeah, right. So digital currency exchanges, we all know what they are. Silvergate's customers include five of the largest U.S. domiciled digital currency exchanges. They have 51 customers that are exchanges. The dollar value of transactions across this network was $5.6 billion, and number of transactions is 6,000. These All these numbers seem a little off. How, how so? Like... Total number of transactions in the first half of the year, 6,000. That just seems low to me for exchanges. So it it sounds like these are relatively large settlements. So if you look at like, is this, you know, is the SEN being used, say, between Coinbase and their institutional customers? Yep. So they're doing relatively large, you know, it's, it's not like traders that are putting five grand in or taking 10 grand out. Yep. It's institutional customer comes in and wants to convert cash to some digital currency or vice versa, 
with Coinbase's institutional accounts, and the SEN is being used as the intermediary to execute that. Gotcha. I'm just speculating here because I that would make more sense as to why the we're seeing these essentially million dollar transaction right. sizes. And then their total deposits for these digital currency exchanges six hundred and fifty million dollars. Okay, and then then their institutional investors; these are hedge funds, VC funds, private equity firms, family offices, so forth and so on. Uh, and okay, typical uses. This I, I actually like this little graph; it gives us a little more detail about what each of these guys are doing. So, typical uses for institutional investor: they use the SEN to transfer fiat to digital currency exchanges and traditional bank accounts, cash management, and then deposit accounts to hold investor funds. So number of customers, 426. Number of SEN transactions, 6.9 billion. 13,000 transactions in the first half of this year. And the, the again, the examples they give are Block Tower and Polychain, which are two very large, like, crypto-focused funds, which at this point kind of do a bit of everything. I, I don't know if they're a mix of VC and hedging and all that. Um, and then other customers, it's not super important. It's really small, 0.2 billion. Companies developing new protocols, platforms and applications, mining operations, providers of other services and whatnot. So they kind of do the same thing that the institutional investors do, except on a much, much larger, smaller scale. Yeah. So it does sound like essentially they're operating as a bank where most banks, you know, let you make a million dollar transfer in and out of Coinbase. They do. So maybe that's where the value of the SEN comes in. Yeah. If you're a hedge fund and you need to be able to, I need to transfer a million dollars to Coinbase out of my bank account. They might be the one of the few providers that will do that without you meeting with getting flagged or having a meeting right. with the IRS at your bank account. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's get into the SEN then. Let's learn a little more about the network. So Silvergate Exchange Network, SEN. We designed the SEN as a network of digital currency exchanges and digital currency investors that enables the efficient movement of U.S. dollars between SEN participants 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. 366 in a leap year. That's true. The In this respect, the SEN is a first-of-its-kind digital currency infrastructure solution. It was developed and tested in 2017 with limited number of customers, blah, blah, blah. None of this is important. Let's, okay. The core function of the SEN is to allow participants to make transfers of dollars from their SEN account at the bank to the bank account of the, another SEN participant with which a counterparty relationship has been established and to view funds transfers received from their SEN counterparties. Counterparty relationships between parties affecting digital currency transactions are established on the SEN to facilitate dollar transfers associated with those transactions. So I think this kind of like yep, that's, coincides with your with your uh, your like suspicion. Yeah, which makes sense why their primary customers are institutional investors and exchanges. Those would be the logical counterparties. Yep. SCN transfers occur on a virtually instantaneous basis as compared to electronic funds transfers, HCH, uh, wire transfers, ACH, so forth and so on, which can take hours to days. All right, tech side. Our proprietary cloud-based application programming interface, or API, combined with our online banking tools, allows customers to efficiently control their fiat currency, transact through the SCN, and automate their interactions with our tech platform. So what value do customers get from this? Customers value this around-the-clock access to U.S. dollar transactions and further benefit from the SEN's 
powerful network effects. As more users join the SCN, its value to existing digital currency exchanges and investor users increases dramatically. These compelling technology tools and corresponding network effects have enabled us to attract many of the digital currency industry's largest and most reputable market participants as customers. This growth has driven 12.7 billion in SEN transfers in the first two quarters of 2019, which is 374% more than the 2018 comparable period. Okay, so that I guess we have a better idea now of what the SEN is and their claim about, what, your, what do you think about this claim around the network effects? I mean, they're just saying that the more people use the SEN, the better it is, which which makes sense. It's like any other exchange. If everyone is using that exchange, it's more useful. It's not, not right. any, like, I think they just like to say that before they then talk about the percentage growth because it helps drive the point home of like, hey, we're we're doing well. Yep. But it's not anything particularly insightful, they're saying. Yep. All right. So what their API offers, let's get into this. So they talk about their API quite a bit in their prospectus. So, you know, a little bit of context and overview before we get into this. So one complaint among many that people have with their banks is there's no like interface, there's no API for uh, most banks. And I think maybe Europe might be a little ahead of American banks in doing this. But, you know, if you're a developer and say you just want to interface with your own bank you just it's pretty much impossible like you want to build your own little mint for your own sake like you just can't do it so there's a lot of interest around some like tools that exist or that could exist that would help people kind of be their own not be their own bank but just be able to interface with their bank in all kinds of ways that you know they they would want to so uh, you hear a lot more financial institutions these days talking about like their API and how it's special and like how it's going to be different and so forth and so on. Yeah. And, and I, I would like to point out that they're not solving the underlying problem here. The underlying problem is that the methods of transaction interbank like ACH and wires are slow and don't have a good uh, interface like to deal with programmatically. What they've essentially done is have owned the accounts on both ends. Like that's where they keep talking about network effects, network effects. So both, you know, Coinbase and the institutional investor that wants to buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin are on the SEN network. So the instantaneous transfer isn't having to use SCH or wire. It's just updating the right. internal ledger within their bank accounts. And they've provided yep. an API for that. So th their breakthrough is really building the network of just like everyone having a bank account with us and then we can do stuff using non-standard like we don't have to mess with ACH or wires but they're not solving that like fundamental problem so I, th I think it is worth noting that so which is nothing wrong with that if they again get everyone on board their platform and they build a good API like who cares right Okay, so API integration our proprietary internally developed cloud-based transactional API uh, got all the buzzwords there, enables our customers to build direct access to the SCN and their deposit accounts into their technology infrastructure. We are one of only a small group of regulated financial institutions that has developed and deployed a transactional API, which is a more advanced tool than widely deployed informational APIs, which merely enable the sharing of information. Customers who use our API commit significant time and valuable resources to integrate our API into their systems because 
<laughs> not <laughs> a brag. Definitely not a brag. Um, <laughs> uh, very much not like Stripe, but integrate our API into their systems because of the increased functionality provided by our API connection. Once fully integrated, our API provides significant value for our customers via its direct interface to our core system. For example, our exchange customers use the API attribute client and counterparty funds programmatically and in virtually real time, a distinct advantage over traditional cash management systems, which require human intervention to attribute such funds. Even if customers were to develop competing solutions to our API and SEN, our customers would need to commit significant time, money, and other resources to replace our solutions or adopt additional solutions. Uh, I don't, know I don't agree with agree that with at that. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, talk about that. So first of all, if their API is good, it should not require massive resources to integrate with in terms of the actual integration piece. The business logic of what your actual app is trying to do or what you're trying to perform might be more complex. But fundamentally, it's, it's account creation, sub-account creation, transaction creation, and then just doing a bunch of lookups on the state of things. So it's it's not fundamentally anything very complicated. And like a good competitor should be able to build a similar API. And so the integration wouldn't look dramatically different. Right. So I think they're overstating, like they're trying to basically imply that there's a high switching cost once we get customers using our API. And I don't really believe that's yep. true. I think that the main benefit you have is people actually depositing money into accounts with you. Like the sw switching costs is having capital and having the counterparties you want to interact with on your system. Because as we mentioned, like you're not replacing ACH or any of the interbank methods. The API switching costs honestly shouldn't yep. be that high. So I I would say this is just BS. Yeah, and they face significant... If any competition has a better API, I mean, you're, they're kind of assuming here that future competition are going to have a hard, like harder APIs to integrate with. Like if anyone comes along with the Stripe quality API for this, they and they're admitting that their API is difficult to integrate with, then that's a problem. Yeah. Okay, so while the bank does not integrate into customer systems, the bank provides tools for sophisticated customers to securely access and interact with their accounts functions over the bank's API. The movement towards APIs or open banking is an initiative that many U.S. banks have embraced. An application and API allows customers to automate manual processes, scale operations, or innovate on new product offerings by giving programmatic access to their account history, abilities, and payments, or the automated reconciliation of their accounts. Okay, so there's a lot of big language on all sorts of fancy stuff that you can do with the API. So I think they're taking claim to the value of what their customers are doing. Their API has 20 API calls. I just counted it. It does 20 things yeah. of which... And, that, and, for con and for context, that's not a lot. Of which eight. Eight are... N so 12 of those 20 are read-only operations. So it's just looking at stuff like account balances or the list of your own customers. So there's eight functions that involve... Creating an account, creating an SEN account, creating a transfer, uh, creating or editing a payment, or creating or deleting a webhook. So not like that may be all that needs to be done, but I just want to emphasize that like they've overstated the switching cost and difficulty of like what their API is doing. Yep. 
All right. So it is the customer's efforts to leverage these tools that may require significant time and resources. They already mentioned something like this. For instance, some of the bank's customers integrate the API with their systems within a day. Imagine that. (laughs) While other customers have created complex programs built on the API that were built over a period of months. How do we find out who these people are and sell them on Quantlayer services? Each customer's use case and implementation is slightly different, but all are facilitated by the same basic APIs, documentation, developer pro- portal, and Silvergate integration team. The SEN's ability to permit a customer to make an internal transfer from their own account to another Silvergate customer's account is one of the functionalities available through and supported by the bank's API. And you mentioned like you have gone through this API. One thing I thought was funny, again, this may be, you know, like I have a tendency to read into some of this stuff too much, but their actual API URL, like every API has a URL, for example, like, sorry, every REST-based API has like a URL, for example. So this their API, it, which looks to be built on Azure because the, it's, the actual URL is an azure-api.net uh, URL. So what's your take take on that? Do you, like I would think it'd be a little more professional to kind of have that under their own domain. Yeah, I think I I don't think that it's anything particularly like I think it's just a little bit of housekeeping. They should go and put it under their own domain. Azure API yep. offers a custom domain configuration. They've left yep. it as a subdomain on the default Azure API domain. But the fact that they're using Azure API, I think uh, fair enough. They should just go get a custom domain, especially where they're a bank, and it would look better from a branding perspective. Yep. Okay, so to their risk factors with respect to the Azure site, I know there was one that you kind of like pointed out that uh, we should talk through. Do you want to maybe talk through that one? Yeah. So, you know, there were a bunch of them related to business, but then there was one on the technical side, uh, and it goes, our operations could be interrupted if our third-party service providers experience operational or other systems difficulties terminate their services or fail to comply with banking regulations. So, you know, obviously they're using Azure as their cloud services provider to build their API and provide their service on, which is fair enough. Anyone that's using a cloud service is reliant on the uptime of that cloud service, which takes care of the first point. I don't think we need to delve too deeply into that. The other two are more interesting in this space because we've seen particularly banks and payment providers, but also cloud services companies unwilling to work with companies in the cryptocurrency or digital currency space. So they're building this whole, they're a bank building their crypto business on the Azure API. And if Microsoft decides that we don't want to be in anything crypto related and they cut them off, they're in a bad way. Or similarly, if there are banking regulations that affect how your cloud infrastructure must be uh, deployed and right. operated, and Azure does not provide a service or does not, or they're unable to build their service in such a way to be compliant, they run into trouble again. I know, uh, you know, we've looked into like building HIPAA compliant systems on the web, and while you can do so on AWS, it's a lot easier to use third-party providers that take care of a lot of the legwork for you. And I imagine it's something similar for banking. So there's some risks with using third-party service providers that are specific to the crypto business and to banking business in general. And just anecdotally, I remember when we first looked at maybe putting some Facebook ads and whatnot out for our podcast, which is 
has some crypto material and we're not selling anything. It's literally just a informative topic. We've had some hard times getting getting ads out there. So yeah. if you're actually banking and dealing with finances, there is a higher level of risk there. Right. And that kind of brings us to like a high level risk that these guys have, which I think is kind of obvious, but it's one of those things that on one hand we have, you know, central banks kind of getting more and more interested in digital currency, like having kind of internal digital currency initiatives going on. On the other hand, we have some states, also some governments being very much against crypto and digital currency initiatives. So these guys, you know, if if one of those kind of fails or loses steam or loses interest or overnight, there's like a, we don't want this kind of business happening here. We see like a, you know, the, the whole vape unrelated, but in terms of how much power the government does have in industry, like the whole vape thing uh, happened in a really short period of time. Like a few people died and then within two weeks, they basically made uh, flavored vapes illegal. You know, if any kind of like panic results from uh, digital currency, which is ripe for panic in some in some degree. Did you see the photos? This is uh, tangential, but there were f- uh, photos that people were posting of uh, shelves where the vapes had been pulled and there were signs saying uh, product removed for safety reasons. And adjacent to the vapes were all the cigarettes still on the shelves with the Surgeon General's warning, which I just thought was funny. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's amazing. But yeah, that's a good point. Like our governments are not necessarily rational and it can be likely like this whole business gets shut down very quickly. And I would say that is going to put a perpetual ceiling on their multiple until we get a ton of clarity from the government about what's going on with this thing. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks.